with our, our um, hesitations, and, uh, and, um, and we look to him to speak to us through his word. And, um, and that's the context of this, finding our way to God. And as Nate said, uh, we've, we've looked at various psalms, uh, meaning with the question, how do we find our way to trust, to forgiveness, to help, to joy, to wisdom, to hope? And it is quite fitting that we come to what uh, I hope you will see moments from now as something of a mega spotlight that God has put on some aspects of who he is and what he has done as we begin to think about this together. We talked uh, a little bit, I know last week, uh, talked about the fact that for some people, the reality is that life just has not worked out the way you had thought it would. For some of you, that's a long story. For some of you, it's a fresh story. But the life has not worked out the way maybe you thought it would. Maybe it's as simple as people aren't going along with the plans you have for yourself or for them. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons, there's a lot of things that, that mark our lives that, that leave us with a new, fresh set of questions. And some of those questions never get asked, much less answered. And what I would suggest as we wade into Psalm 136 today is, are there questions that, that you have yet to ask that, about the way life is working that God addresses here? And I'll try to show you what I, I mean by that. When we try to find our way somewhere, the, the reality is even the best navigators among us. My father was a navigator in World War II, at the end of World War II. He loved to tell the stories, and he loved to show the maps and to pull out his, his instruments, uh, how he navigated from one place to another. And I never, got, I never figured it out, but I'm not a navigator. And, and, yet, and yet all the time, we're doing a little bit of navigation we're, uh, we're not only deciding which street to turn on, but what choice to make with this or that. There's navigating that we're doing all the time. And some of it, a lot of it, is how do we navigate through this thing called life in a way that works? It's why some of us kind of settle very quickly into some kind of criticism, critical spirit. It's why others of us grow into cynicism. It's why some of us, our lives are marked by that discontent Nate mentioned, or maybe it's a, a low-grade or a high-fever sense of depression or even despair. But before we wade into Psalm 136, there's a question that I want to pose that I hope is helpful to you. And that is, are those things that create cynicism, criticism, despair, and depression, are those things giving you something? Are they giving you something that you're not sure you want to let go of? In other words, do you want to get there? I, I ask that because I know my own life and I know there are things that mark my life that, that restrain me 
that are just downright true about me, that, that are the result of pursuing things that, that have offered me something that cannot deliver, but I can't let go. And that may be you as well. We, uh, I jokingly said earlier, we could have subtitled the sermon series, Yes, You Can Get There From Here. <laughs> the question is, do I want to get there from here? Are there things in your life, uh, are there things that, that you're ready to let go of, but can't? And I'm guessing that that's probably true at some place. Letting go of some things that that you can't. Here's the big idea. The best tour guide, and if you're going to go someplace, like some of you have this summer, the best tour guide is also a storyteller. It's the, one, it's the man or woman that will tell you not only what you're looking at, but the story that goes with it. The biographies, the background, the history of this or that. Storytelling. And when that story is told, and you find it taking shape and, and filling out, you're, the, the very thing that you're looking at has a, has a whole different meaning and a whole different understanding, and you have a greater appreciation for it, right? Whether it's an old building, an old house, a broken down car, you know, whatever it is you're looking at, there's a, if there's a the story that goes with it, it's what fills it in. And I would propose to you that when we come to Psalm 136, what we find is, a tour guide, a storyteller who tells the story, who points out the things that are important, and it has such an effect in us that we are different as a result. In fact, if you follow the trail of the steadfast love of God shown in this psalm, if you follow the trail of the steadfast love of God, it will take you into the heart of a story that you always dreamed was true. And it is. And when you do, you stand in the presence of love and will be changed forever. Here's the psalm. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone, who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun, the moon, and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Someone said that gratitude is something that you feel, thanksgiving is something that you do. That's probably right. It starts somewhere and it goes somewhere. Gratitude leads to something, an activity or an expression called giving thanks. But there's things that get in the way of that. I've already mentioned a few, and maybe some others came to your mind. Angelus Arian was a cultural anthropologist who wrote about this, who thought about this, who talked about this, and wrote a book entitled Living in Gratitude, A Journey That Will Change Your Life. And as she did that work, it was the fruit of other work that she had done throughout her lifetime, and she came up with several barriers to gratitude. And maybe you'll recognize these and find them in your own sense of, yeah, that's right. Envy. Uh, Envy is something that stands in the way of gratitude, she says. And very related to that is greed. But so does pride. And... um, With the PhD in hand and all of her good intent, the solution, the remedy that she offered was to look inward. To look inward to begin to rearrange the parts of your life so that envy, greed, pride, and narcissism, she also mentioned, that egotism, so that those things don't have the same influence and impact. But to look inward, for her, made sense given where she was coming from. She was a spiritual master. She was a Zen spiritual master. And from a Buddhist worldview, to look inward for the solution is the, is the journey, it is the path. The issue 
is the journey inward never gets ultimately to, to the real cause of envy, pride, and greed. And when the remedy doesn't address the real issue, it never addresses the issue. It doesn't change the way we see Scripture talking about the kind of change that we all long for. It's insightful, but it, when, it, when the diagnosis doesn't reach the cause, it comes up short. You see, to look inward and to then be grateful, to give thanks for the little things or the big things, raises another set of questions that I have every fourth Thursday in November. And maybe you do too. When our culture raises the flag, the flag of giving thanks. And when our culture does that and when we step into that, the questions that ought to come is thankful to who? <laughs> thankful for what? And we sit around the table and think of the things that we might be grateful for. But when we stop short, when the, when the, when the examination of that, that enterprise stops with being grateful without that gratefulness leading to thanksgiving to the right one, then we, have, we are spinning our wheels and treading water in a sea that will take us under. What does it mean to give thanks? And who do we give thanks to? And why? Or what for? <laughs> Those are the questions that come at us as, we, as you heard some of this Psalm 136. Let me say a couple things about this psalm uh, before we can go much further. One is, it was traditionally sung at the conclusion of Passover. And as you read that or heard it read or as you ponder it again or look at it, you can probably begin to figure why. When you understand Passover was this, this uh, national celebration honor, recognizing what God had done to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. That was what, that's where Passover began. That's what it centered on. And they met year after year to tell the story one more time. And children learned the story from their fathers as they sat and as they heard the story narrated. What, what was it happened? Why were we there? And what was the story? And the story was told. So you could see why Psalm 136 would have been the right choice to mark, to conclude the, the Passover celebration. The gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, may be really alluding to this when they describe when Jesus was with the disciples after the, the, the Last Supper, Celebrating the Passover, they left singing a hymn. They sang a hymn and then they went. And it's very likely that it was Psalm 136. So that's the historical setting for this. But there's another thing you can't miss uh, in the reading. In fact, you might say this might be one of the most inefficient uses of words in all of Scripture. <laughs> you could say that, but don't go away. Don't leave on that. It was, it was uh, the term is antiphonal. It was written to be read and responded to. So the worship leader, we're told, would call out a word of praise to God, each sentence being an improvised elaboration of what God is and does 
And then the people responded in unison with the reason, the steadfast love of the Lord endures, linking each result to its cause. I did that work for you today, but can't you hear it? The response of the people linking the result to the cause, recognizing that with each blow of the story that there is a cause and it's not random chance and it's not, and it's not less than intentional. It's the very specific movement of God toward his people that the steadfast love of the Lord. We'll come back to that in a second. But what we want to do here is follow our tour guide. We want to see what the tour guide is saying along the way, along this journey. And the first thing he does in this introduction, these first three verses, is he starts with an imperative and says, this is where we're going. This is the destination. This is, this is where your trip is taking you. It's taking you to the land of giving thanks. It's taking you to that place. You want to go? Here's how you get there. He says giving thanks. It's a word that, that means uh, more than it sounds like. In fact, what it sounds like is a bit curious as well. It's the Hebrew word yada. It's yada. So the next time you hear someone use the expression yada, 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 tell them that they've mispronounced it. It's yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Using this glib little expression of glossing over things that are inconsequential. There's nothing more consequential the psalmist says, than giving thanks. And we're going to unpack that in a little bit. Uh, Derek Kidner is a commentator, and I'm always helped by his concise treatment of a passage. And in Psalm, on Psalm 30, 136, he says, giving thanks is not the whole meaning of this word. It basically means to confess or to acknowledge and therefore calls us to thoughtful, grateful worship, spelling out what we know or have found of God's glory in his deeds. It means basically speaking the excellence of someone, extolling them. That's what is to flow from my lips and yours, in addition to talking about weather and the, the latest sports results. <laughs> it's extolling and telling one another what we have found to be true and lovely and beautiful about the one who made us, as we're about to see, the one who did more than make us, but redeemed us. That's the what. That's what we are to do. We're to give thanks, and it is an imperative. We are to give thanks. But who is involved? Who is in view? Who is it? And you know, without thinking very hard, who this is, but, but he uses some terms to unpack even our... We know the answer is God, but he unpacks that in a way that is helpful. And when someone says to you, uh, well, tell me about your God, here's a place you can turn. You can use these categories to talk about the God. They may not believe in, in, uh, in God, but they may not know the God to believe in. And here is a reality as, as he unpacks it. He says, this is who we're talking about. Verse 1, he talks about the Lord. And when you see, as we've said more than once before, when you see that Lord in all caps, it's referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is God's covenant name that, that he identifies himself with and says, this is who I am. 
I am that I am. I am who I am. And I am present. And I am a covenant-making God. That's the label that, that's the, the attachment that goes with that label. It's I'm a covenant-making God. I'm personal. I'm involved. And I'm coming to you. And that was spoken into a polytheistic culture. I don't know if our culture is polytheistic or not. I can't quite tell. Which probably means that it is. We certainly have a lot of people shrugging their shoulder at the notion of God. Or even the prospect of God. Even in this part of the country. There's a, there's a polytheism that, that this text speaks into. Speaks into this culture, into your world. And says there is a covenant making God. And you need to know who he is. It's not a generic, it's not, it's not a, a God of your own imagination. It's not the God that you want him to be. It's the God who is. And that's what he begins to un, unpack. He's, he's Lord, in verse 2 it says, He's God of gods and Lord of lords. And that, that's echoing language from Deuteronomy 10 where we read, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. You see, this is his character. It's, it's being fleshed out. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. That's who this God is. He's the one who loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. It's a God who not only makes the world in which we live, but he's engaged in it. He is actively involved in it. It's the, he's, he is the Lord, God of gods and Lord of lords. That's who's in view. And then the rest of the psalm gets to the, uh, the why. Why are we to give thanks? Or what for? And this is where the tour guide rolls up his or her sleeves and starts pointing. Starts pointing left and right and up and down and around. And the first thing we read here in these verses 4 through 9 is where he says, Hey, look around. Look, look up, see if you can count those stars. See that sun squint, but look at that sun rise. Look at it pour, peering out from behind the clouds. Look at the seas. The one who, who does great wonders by, who, by his understanding made the heavens, the waters, the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars at night. Look around. And then as you look around, what you're going to see and what you're going to hear are echoes of a story that is told in Genesis 1. Right here in this psalm, we're reminded to hear the echoes from Genesis 1 and 2 that begins to explain why we're even here. It explains why there's anything <laughs> That's the point of this. Look around. There's a creation that, that not only echoes Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 19 tells us how to ponder that message. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. There's where my thanksgiving begins. It begins with looking around, looking at the world in which God made, which God made. That's the first signpost that our tour guide points to and says, look, and look around. The second one is this. He says, not only look up, he says, think back. And that's the bulk of the psalm, beginning in verse 10 down through 22. He talks about a deliverance from Egypt. He talks about this exodus that becomes, there's an exodus motif that runs all throughout Scripture, and we don't understand how significant that, 
that story in the Old Testament is until we get to our own story, until we see that what God did with the people in Egypt, delivering them from bondage, is something that he does today. He delivers people from bondage today. And it's not, it's not the kind of bondage, it's not the, the brick-making slavery of, of, of a people trapped in Egypt. But you see, their story is our story in Christ. That motif of the Exodus is something that shapes our basic understanding of the Christian faith. Our understanding of who we are and what God has, has done for us in Christ, delivering us. We'll come back to that in a moment. But, but he says, look, he says, think back. And to this people around the table celebrating Passover, they're thinking back to what God did generations earlier. But you're thinking back. My thinking back goes like, back to like last year. Last two years, the last four years, the last eight years of God delivering you, delivering us from some kind of bondage. Some kind of things that have such a grip on our lives that we couldn't change it. We certainly don't change it by looking inward. We have to look up and we have to look out. We have to look upward to the one who made us. And then we look to a redeemer who delivers us. And then he goes on to talk about the conquest of the land where they struck down great kings. And he mentions two representative kings where they were given a foothold in the land before they entered the promised land. And he says, remember that story? How God gave your fathers the land? And we're reminded uh, as we think about it that, that what God has done for us in Christ is giving us something far, far greater, friends, than acreage. I drive by a lot of nice properties in middle Tennessee and a lot of, lot of nice properties. And there's a part of me that would long for one of them with a cabin, a cabin just in the woods somewhere where I either made my home or could go anytime I wanted. And some of you may even have those kinds of things. But as Nate reminded us earlier, even those things, even the grandest of property ownerships come up short. And what God has done for you in Christ is so far greater, far greater than that cabin in the woods for me. But you have an inheritance, an inheritance in Christ that is imperishable, we are told. That's the conquest. <laughs> he has conquered that for you and given it to you. He has occupied that land, <laughs> that land of our inheritance, the world to come that is given to you. That's the, that's the second signpost. The first one is creation. The second one is redemption with exodus and conquest being aspects of that. And the third one is small. It's tucked in here, but it's just as significant. Verse 25 he not only says, look up, think back. He says, look into your hands and see what you have. Verse 25, he gives food to all flesh. He provides his provision, his providence is, is, is staggering. And you begin to build these things together. As the tour guide says, look up, 
think back, look around, look into your hands, you begin to see that there are reasons, that there's aspects and examples of God's steadfast love that are flowing to you, that have, flow, have come to you in Christ. And just in case you're not quite tracking as you read Psalm 136, as he concludes in verses 23 and 24, he gets very personal. He's moved from telling the story of a previous generation. And now he says, it is he who remembered us. It is, he is he who rescued us from our foes. And it may very well be that what he's writing about is a very recent rescue and deliverance as the people return from captivity. We don't know that for sure, but it would fit that there's a recent occurrence of God's steadfast love when formerly they sat by the waters of Babylon and wept because of this story. <laughs> they were captured. They were, they were bound. They were, they were unable to shake the bonds of what, whatever that is. Just like you and I have things in our lives that we can't shake, shake loose. We can't change. There's pride. There's, there's cynicism. There's criticism. There's, there are things that grip my life and yours that have their tentacles wrapped around me and us so strong that we can't change them. We can't undo that. But there is a deliverer. There is a deliverance. There is one who remembers us in our low estate. And when I recognize that I am spiritually poor, when I am spiritually inept, when I spiritually lack the resources to fix what's wrong with my own heart, I dare not look inward for that remedy. I need someone outside to do what I can't do. I need someone to remember me, to remember us in our low estate to rescue us from our foes. And those are not all, as I mentioned last week, two-armed, two-legged foes. Some of those foes are spiritual. Some of those, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, as we talked last week. But there is a central reason. The tour guide doesn't just say, look up, look around, think back, look into your hands. He doesn't he doesn't leave it at that, and that's why this psalm is so hard to read. It's not the most inefficient of all word uses. In fact, it may be the most efficient because of this recurring drumbeat that you heard. That I dare say you, may, you might even have been wearied by. Unless, unless it is your hope. Unless it is what you stand on and depend on. And not only understand, but something you stand under. And that is the steadfast love of God. So with the time we have, we need to drill a little deeper here. It's, it's, it's the word hesed. It's this covenant love. It's translated his steadfast love, his mercy, his loving kindness, 
or sometimes just his love. I did a very unscientific, un, unacademic, quick study of this, of the use of, the, of the, where you find this notion of steadfast love in the Old Testament. And what you find is a bell curve. You know what a bell curve is? The early books of the Old Testament, it occurs a few times. The, la- the later books of the Old Testament during captivity, it occurs a few times. In the historical books and in the prophetic books, it occurs a little more. But in the Psalms, it appears over a hundred times. And in this Psalm 26. And so what we're looking at, friends, we're looking at the Mount Everest. We're looking at the Mount Everest of what, what God intends us to get about who he is. And so when we say God is love and we check that off and we like that, what does that mean? God's love, uh, the way Augustine talked about love of any kind was that there's two kinds. He called one, one kind of love a complacent love, and he uses that word differently than we do. But a complacent love is love that finds something lovely in the object or the person. So I love my wife because, and she likes to hear those, but I love that sweater because, or I love this weather because, that's the kind of complacent love that finds its, finds its home in something true about the one loved. The other kind of love is a benevolent love, says Augustine, and it's a love for the unlovely. It's sacrificial in nature, and it is for the good of the one loved. And that's the one, I don't need to tell most of you, that is celebrated in Scripture as the heart of God's love, a benevolent love. So he says to this people, I chose you, I called you out of, out of Egypt. I chose you to be my own, not because of anything lovely in you, but because I set my affection on you. It wasn't anything in you that solicited or elicits that benevolent love. It's in spite of what's there, which is why we're in a good place here. Because there's nothing that we can bring that commends God to love us so we can settle into the fact that he's already determined my love for you is not conditioned on who you are or what you do or how faithful you are to me. But I give it to you because I love you. It's that beneficial. I couldn't do any better than John Piper did in trying to measure this. How do we measure this kind of love? And he found four. And here they are. We, we, can, we can measure love by the degree to which the one loved does not deserve it. Whether it's a son, a daughter, a dog, <laughs> or us. Paul says in Romans, it was while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, rebels, God died for us. The degree to which one love does not, does not deserve to be loved. And you begin to see already what a great love this is, the steadfast love of God. The second one is this, the greatness of the price paid to love. And we know what, what, what price God paid for us. John 15 says, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. 
The third measure is the greatness of the good done for the one loved. And we read in John 3.16 that what we find, because God loved the world, he sent his son to give us eternal life. And we know from John 17 that means knowing God. That's the good that is done for those that don't deserve it at a great price. And then finally, but not least of all, is the level of desire for the good of the one loved. I've got two daughters. I can't think of anything I wouldn't do for them because my desire for their good is off the charts. I can't measure it. And God says to us through the prophet Zephaniah, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. That is the level of desire that God has for you. It's, it's, if, if my love for two daughters is off the charts, there's no chart. <laughs> there is no chart. We, we can't get our heads and hearts around this which is why the psalmist says it's going to take 26 repetitions for it to begin to seep in to Tony Giles' heart and maybe yours. But the storyteller, the tour guide, doesn't do a good job unless he or she tells the whole story and connects all the dots. And you and I fail to understand Psalm 136 if we don't see the rest of the story, if we don't see what all three of those signposts are ultimately pointing to. It's not just the stars that we can count. It's not just the exodus that we can describe. It's not just the inheritance that we will have. But it's the one in his beauty and in his loveliness and in his steadfast love did those things for us. We heard it earlier from Colossians 1 that it was Jesus by whom all things were created in heaven and earth. They were created through him and for him. We read in Romans 6 that it was his work on the cross that delivers us from bondage to sin so that we're no longer under its dominion. It's the finished work of Christ in our union with Christ that breaks that hold that looking inward never will. It's united to Christ by faith that breaks the hold of the power of canceled sin. We read because of what he did for us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and kept in heaven for you, greater than that cabin in the woods. It's an inheritance that he is one for you. And we read, too, that as this psalm points to Israel as a servant, we know that Christ is the true servant. He is the one who, who did all that Israel was called upon to do, the one who truly served God's purposes. And it wasn't just firstborn and kings that were struck down. Because he was struck down. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was struck down so that that inheritance was won and purchased. 
That's why John is right to say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's the kind of love. That's that steadfast love that quiets us, that, that settles us in so that we're no longer cynical or critical or depressed or, or despairing. But there's a, a gratitude that expresses itself in giving thanks to the one who made this world, the one who rescued us in our lowly estate, bringing us out of that spiritually poor into a land of riches. And it's why the Apostle Paul helps us when he urges us with these words. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The love of God and the steadfastness of Christ is the Mount Everest of the Psalter. It's what the Spirit of God, who is our tour guide, He is the one who points these out. He is the one who fills in the meanings. He's the one that opens our eyes to see the story and to find our place in it. He is the one who helps us see that we're spiritually poor. And He is the one who helps us see that in Christ we are bountifully rich. And all that we need, all that we will ever need, we find in Him. And when that settles in, when that gets hold of you, envy, greed, pride give way to gratitude and find expression in giving thanks because your heart has been turned not inward but upward. And you'll give thanks to the one who's creating, redeeming, and sustaining love is steadfast and without end. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray and we would ask that you would give us minds and hearts as relentless as the man who wrote this psalm. As we discover instances of your steadfast love. And we want no gaps in our praise and no blanks in our thanksgiving. And would your spirit take us there? Because we can't get there.